Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 167 with my guest Richard Preston. This is Richard's third time on the podcast. Richard is an author of books such as The Hot Zone, Crisis in the Red Zone, Panic and Level 4, and many others. Uh, Richard has spent most of his life writing about infectious diseases and communicable diseases and viruses. And so, you know, he's not a doctor, but he's really knowledgeable about this stuff. And so I've spoken with him now, this is the third time, about COVID-19. And he always sort of calms my mind, but all at once blows it with some crazy facts. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Richard is a really, really smart person, um, and his books are amazing. So if you want to learn more about viruses and sort of their effects on society right now... um, check him out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Richard Preston. Take care. Bye. Well, well uh, all right, let's gavel this to order here. I'm recalling, uh, recording on my end. Uh, Richard Preston, um, thank you again for, for uh, joining me here. This is your third time on. Um, and you've been really gracious to sort of keep me abreast uh, with my silly questions as this pandemic has gone along. I think we spoke about like maybe three or four days into the pandemic when it first locked, the first lockdown happened. And then about, I think in April, maybe is the last time we spoke. Um, and here we are now, this is July 15th. And I'm curious to sort of just let you tell me what you know, that's new. And then if you've answered it, if you, if I have other questions, I'll just ask, but, um, I'll let you roll here with what, what's, what numbers you have and sort of what uh, any updates you might, um, want to tell me about COVID-19 right now. Well, I wanted to give you an, an interesting little statistic or calculation that I did recently. And it has to do with, um, so how many people in the world in total have already been infected? You know, that is to say, how many active cases of COVID do we have in the world today? And what, what are we talking about in terms of the amount of virus that is, it is replicated itself in the human population? What are we really talking about here? Mm-hmm. So uh, officially, we have about, I think, 5 million official active cases. These are confirmed cases around the world. The chances are pretty good that there are many, many unconfirmed, unknown, unseen cases that are out there. And the ratio could easily be 10 to 1. So there could be roughly 50 million people on the planet currently infected with the coronavirus. Now, um, that's a really rough number. But how much virus does that represent if, let's say, 50 million people are are infected? Now, um, I'm I'm looking at my notes here just to make sure I'm, uh, you know, I swear I'm on target here. I want to be accurate. So let's, let's go through the basics first about this virus. So a virus is a parasite. It's a replicating parasite. It can only exist uh, and make copies of itself inside the cells of a living host. Mm-hmm. In the case of coronavirus, COVID, the COVID-19 virus, it was originally a bat virus. It is a natural virus. Uh, there exists at this point zero evidence that it came from a laboratory and plenty of evidence that it came from mother nature herself, uh, from bats that live in a cave somewhere in Southern China. And uh, from there, uh, by, by decoding the RNA, the genetic code of the virus, scientists have been able to reconstruct some of its history. 
it looks like the virus went from a bat to some other creature, some other animal. And then from that animal, whatever that animal was, might have been a pangolin, might have been something else, might have been a ferret, nobody really knows. It ultimately went into one human being somewhere, probably in Wuhan province, uh, that is to say in Hubei province, which is the province that contains its capital city, Wuhan. Uh, the virus probably looks now like the virus did not jump into a human at the wet market, the meat market in mm -hmm. Wuhan, where wild animals are sold. Uh, there were early cases were not connected to the meat market, but they were in Hubei province. So it could have come from some other place. It could easily have come from a village somewhere where people are living in proximity to a cave where the bats are and perhaps are raising some kind of unusual form of livestock mm -hmm. that could, could have gotten infected. But at this point, nobody knows. This is one of the very big unanswered questions. So, and, and you know, it's interesting that the Chinese, the Chinese government has not released very much information, has really actively repressed information about the origins of the virus. My operating hypothesis here is that the Chinese don't know. They haven't been able to identify who the very first human cases were. And they're embarrassed by that. Mm. And they don't want to tell the world that they don't know where the virus came from. You can imagine that this would put the Chinese government in a very embarrassing and difficult position if they were to tell the world, gee, uh, we, we actually, we've tried and we don't, we haven't been able to find out where it came from. Nobody would believe that. Well, I think I, I just, the, the, the thing that I, I was going to ask you about, like, was it made in a lab? I think that's the assumption. That's the thing that makes the most sense to people who don't know anything about epidemiology or how viruses work. Um, it makes sense. It's like a conspiracy theory. It makes sense to you that so, that a lab would make this and it would get out or whatever. And that seems more nefarious. You know, it's like the when there's conspiracy theories around mass shootings or around anything, you know. It just makes more sense when in reality, the origins in terms of what the scientists and, you know, uh, people who know this stuff are saying is that it's maybe more chaotic and less. I mean, sometimes this happens, <laughs> you know, like you it's not a planned thing, you know, and it's it's actually scarier for a government to come out and say, you know, that's you don't know. right. That's a chaos. That's a chaotic thing to inject into society, too. Now, I'm not saying. I am definitely not saying that China is handling this well, and I'm not saying we are either. And but I, I understand a little bit why people go the conspiracy theory side, but it's helpful to hear you say this is usually how this goes. <laughs> you know, it jumps yeah. from one species to another, and usually it's somebody who just is you know raising cattle or you know something like that. It's less nefarious. It's less nefarious. It's more likely. Mm -hmm. However. Um, I think it's important to to understand and live by the scientific method. Mm -hmm. The scientific method requires that we be entirely skeptical all the time of everything we encounter. Mm. This is what the great physicist Richard Feynman was so good at, at, at looking at some, something that was an agreed upon wisdom mm -hmm. and going, wait a minute, is this really true? And so I just want to point out, that we don't, have, we don't have any knowledge where it came from 
and it can't be ruled out that it did come from a lab, mm. okay? And that question needs to be examined just the way all the other questions need to be examined. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the possibility that it did come from a lab accidentally somehow. Yeah. Maybe not from the Wuhan virology lab, but there are other labs in China. They have to be looked at. Right. And then I would hope that we could rule it out. I think it's most likely that we would rule it out. I think it's, it's, you know, it's pretty much a done deal that it came mm-hmm. from nature. But remember, science hasn't established where it came from. I, and I'm really great. I'm science, really- the idea is that you, you know, you look at everything and you rule out possibilities, just like the way Sherlock Holmes did it, right? right? You rule out possibilities until there's only one possibility left. I really apologize for interrupting you there. I, I wanted to just thank, I mean, this is, I'm an emotional guy. You know, I'm an artist, I'm on stage and I like, I like being happy and things that make me scared don't make me happy. And so like, I can get emotional about this stuff. And this is why I like talking to you because, you know, I, I think I just want to, I want people to place their fear appropriately. Like, you know, it could be possible it was in a lab. That's true. And let's examine it rationally. Let's let's not just go there because it's the thing that makes you feel better right now. Like, let's examine it. If there's no evidence, right. then don't keep looking for it. If it's not there, go look somewhere else, you know, like keep, just keep your eyes open and keep rational about it. Yeah, man. If you want to save your ass, look at the truth. Okay. Think of a ship, a sailing ship in a violent storm. You have to look at everything. You have to look at the rigging. You have to look at the sails. You have to look at, at the management of the ship. And you have to look at where the wind is coming from, where the waves are coming from. And you have to see the situation. You have to have full situational awareness. You have to see everything clearly if you're going to survive, if you're going to know what is the right thing to do in any given situation. And we as a species face this question right now with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, The U.S. government is doing a complete botch of it. They are not managing the ship well, and they are not looking at reality. They're looking at what they want to see, which is their imaginations and their hopes. But that is not the way to survive a storm. Do you mind if I ask you? Do I mind? Do you mind if I ask you a question? You can you can tell me if it's too personal answer and you'd you'd not feel comfortable. But like you you said something that. You know, when you say something like the U.S. government is botching it, people like, you know, I say that to my, you know, a friend of mine or or a family member or something, and they assume it's because I voted one way or another. And I'm not going to ask you which way you vote. I'm kind of curious, like, are your friends like in the science community? I know you're an author. Um, You know, I don't you know, I, I don't want to imply that you're a doctor and that this is something, you know, you're treating patients every day. But you are around a lot of people and you've spoken to people who know this stuff inside and out. What is the chatter around the cooler? Like, is it sort of like, oh, the institutions will save us? Or is it like, code red, people don't believe us anymore? Like, or or is it somewhere a little more complicated than that? Well, I think, you know, it's a really, that's a great question to ask. I can't fully answer it because I don't think that I know everything to know about how, how the science community is dealing with this. But my take on it is, The scientists have been dealing with this kind of skepticism from the public ever since Galileo got threatened with being burned at the stake for saying that the earth revolved around the sun. And you remember at his trial, uh, he was forced to take those views back or, or die at the stake in a fire. And so he agreed, okay, you know, the sun revolves around the earth. 
And then when the trial was over, he muttered, Pero si muove, in Italian, which means, but nevertheless, it moves. <laughs> Meaning the earth moves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, scientists, yeah. they know this. You know, yeah. this is in their genes, practically, you know, the skepticism and the anger, the rage and the repression of the political system to what they're saying. Right. Uh, so this is nothing new. And furthermore, you know, there are many people out there who are adherents to the Trump philosophy who seem to believe that the, the coronavirus is overblown, it's being hyped by the media, or that it's a hoax. Now, actually, this is no different than the way African villagers reacted to the presence of Ebola virus mm. when political and scientific authorities were saying to them, it's real and it's really scary. And an awful lot of villagers initially said, yeah, but it's a hoax. It doesn't exist. It's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is that when people start dying around you, when you, when you are directly affected, people wake up really fast yeah. and people are extremely good at protecting their own best interests and their own lives. And that's going to happen in the United States. I mean, I don't know how much death and suffering it's going to take. It's a horrifying situation, but eventually the population is going to wake up. Um, I'm fearful that it's going to take a while and there are going to be huge costs to pay. Well, um, I don't want to keep you any longer than I have to, Richard, but I feel like I stopped you. You were about to lay out a bunch of numbers and stuff, and you had, um, uh, and then I, I derailed us. So I want to get us back well, on track there. I apologize. You didn't derail us. I derailed us. I got sidetracked. Uh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, please. But um, uh, I just wanted to add that um, the other thing that I think is is very much bubbling in the science community is that they're more aware of than we are in the general public of the tools and weapons that are coming into play here against the coronavirus. And I believe that some very effective tools and weapons are going to come online. Hmm. It may take a little while, but in particular, antibody drugs are going to come online. And these are drugs that were highly effective against Ebola. So it seems hmm. um, one drug was apparently able to reverse the disease in a person dying of Ebola, reverse the disease in 90 minutes. Um, now that's stunning. Yeah. And there's no reason to think that we might have a drug, maybe even before the end of 2020, that if somebody is dying of COVID, if they're going through that horrendous shock-like event in the late stages of the disease, that a drug could reverse it, mm. could save that person's life. It's not going to make them better instantly, mm-hmm. but it might be enough to make the difference to save a life. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that I do think that eventually we're going to have a vaccine. I don't know when and I don't know how much, but the scientific community is really focused on these on these tools and weapons, and they are throwing everything they've got at it. And I have a sense of optimism. I, I'm sorry, but I do. And I don't apologize for that. I, you know, it's nice to hear. It makes me feel a little less like I have to take a deep breath. I am not predicting the end of the world here, Uh you know, and I'm not even predicting the end of American civilization. We're going to be okay. Okay. Um, We have fucked up massively. Our government has fucked up massively. And there are plenty of people in the United States who haven't learned the lessons they really need to learn, Hmm. which is that mask wearing is the key. If everybody wore a mask, 
the plague would be over in pretty quick order. Yeah. Um, if everybody I, did social distancing and masks. I've never, you know, this is different. not, this is not related to this at all, but I just have been like, okay, you can carry your gun on the outside if you wear a mask. Deal? Like, yeah. you know, I just feel like, what, what That's are we deal. talking about here? Like, yeah. like, okay, yeah, fine. We'll stop arguing. Is that good? Cause yeah. I feel like we'll save a lot more lives with a mask than we will with the guns, but that's all, that's a topic that we can save for another podcast, but yeah, um, <laughs> that's a deep one. We won't go there yeah. too much. Yeah. But anyway, I was going to give you some statistics. Please, yeah. So, and the question that I'm trying to answer is, okay, how much coronavirus is actually out there in the population? So let's do a little calculation now. Um, the coronavirus particle is a little sphere covered with these bumps and spikes. And that sphere, that little ball, is um, about, I believe, 125 nanometers across. Now, what does that mean? You can visualize it this way. If 800 of these little spheres were lined up side by side, they would span the thickness of a human hair. Okay, so you get a sense of the size of the particle. It's very, very small. Mm-hmm very small. Now, how many particles does a person who is sick with coronavirus, like how many particles do they have in their body? Well, I'm going to throw out a really rough, like an astronomer's kind of estimate. The number is about, let's say, I'm going to say maybe a hundred billion. Um, because you have a lot of cells in your body mm-hmm. and quite a few of them are infected by coronavirus and each infected cell may have 50,000, a hundred thousand coronavirus particles in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns into a factory that basically turns itself into coronavirus particles and then the cell bursts and then the particles go everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we, and a hundred billion particles is actually not that many in biological terms. Okay. Mm. So if each person who is sick has a hundred billion particles in their body, um, and I could be off by a factor of 10, I don't know. Um, and then if we have 50 million people who are infected, okay, how much coronavirus is that? Well, I did the calculation. And if you took all those little balls that those, you know, all of them, you counted them up, the number comes to a quintillion Mm -hmm. coronavirus particles are now replicating inside human bodies on the planet, a quintillion. Well, that's a number that it's hard to imagine, hard to grasp, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a one followed by 18 zeros. That's a big number, a quintillion. So like there's a, there's a million and then a there's billion. A million, billion, trillion, a trillion, quadrillion. quadrillion, and then a quintillion. Right. Okay. okay. Now... If you took a quintillion of these coronavirus particles and you packed them all together into a cube, that cube would be about four and three quarter inches on a side. (laughs) That is the total amount of coronavirus that has now invaded the human species and is replicating. So, okay, okay, stop. Can I just stop you there for a second while I try to hold in my laughter um, at how vulnerable the human body is that? So you're telling me that a four and three quarter inch cube, I'm, I'm hearing this correct. So a cube that's yes, four and three quarter inches on every side. Right. That if makes I set that million particles. Right. I don't know what four and three quarters inches, but let's say like this is my mouse, right? So this is maybe five or six inches. You know, let's, let's say that yeah. this cubed yeah. is what 
is currently we're guessing, of course, this is not, you know, an exact thing, but that's what's currently exists on the planet inside human beings. Yeah. If you took four Twinkies and you stacked them together, that would be about that. And that is what four Twinkies. And so then, so, okay, continue. Sorry. I just wanted to clarify that. So what is, uh, I think I know what your point is, but continue. What is that? What does that mean to you? Why is that important? Well, the point is you've already articulated it. It shows just how vulnerable the human species is, how vulnerable we are to these emerging new viruses that are coming out of nature for which there is no cure, no vaccine, no way to stop it except the ancient method of quarantine. Wait, you said you were optimistic. You said you were optimistic, Richard. I did. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. I feel like I'll you need repeat to... repeat <laughs> it. I am optimistic. Okay. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, I see that the number is kind of shocking, isn't it? You would have well, thought there would be a lot more coronavirus. Well, can I ask that. this? So, it, but rel- let's put it relative to like the flu. I mean, this was the thing that everybody was talking about. Oh, it's just another flu. Okay. I mean, sorry, I made that voice as if that's the voice of people who say that. Um, but relative to the amount of vir- viral particles that are in the flu virus right now in human beings at its worst in terms of just like the last 10 years, not, let's not talk about the, like this influenza, but like, what would that mean? Do you think it would be a relative size, relatively close size, or is it just different? Is it a different thing? And like, it feels like this virus is way more contagious than others. And I'm not exactly sure why I feel that way. I don't know if that's a true feeling to have, or it's just a feeling. No, coronavirus is highly contagious and it's, it's almost certainly highly contagious through the air in the airborne route. Right. So you can get infected simply by inhaling a few particles. So yeah, it, it's really scary. Now, I don't know what the average size offhand of a, an influenza particle is. I think they're bigger than coronavirus, mm-hmm. but they're going to be in any given flu season on the planet, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, there are going to be many, many millions of people who are processing flu, who are infected with right. flu. They're going to have a lot of particles in their body. But the total amount of influenza in the human species is whatever that, you know, whatever that total volume is, I'm going to guess that it's not much more than the size of a basketball. I mean, that's it. I, I just want to like, to me, I, I, you know, you do not have to do work on my behalf, but I would love to know what that, num- what that actually is, because that's something that like, if people look at like, okay, you think this is the flu. I don't disagree with you. It is very, it's in the family. It's in a, you know, it's in the world of being sick and coughing. Yes, you're right. But this is how much influenza virus is on the planet. And 41,000 people died of that last year. This is how much coronavirus is on the planet. And how many, how many people, how many people have died of it this year? Not even this year, right up to date of coronavirus that we know of. What's that number? Well, that's a great question. I don't know the actual number. I can only tell you that um, in the United States, it's about 130,000 currently. Great. So those are confirmed deaths. Right. So this is, we're six months into this or five months into this. You're right. It, it's, it's in the family. It's way different. No, I'm sorry. It's way different than the flu. Like this tiny amount has killed this many people already. Now, this leads me to like one of my final questions here. What, in terms of uh, immunity, what do we know right now um, I'm starting to hear anecdotal stuff. I don't know if it's true or based on anything of, you know, some friends of mine who got sick who are now feeling terrible again and are going to get COVID tested again. They haven't gotten the results. So again, this is like 
fears of like, am I actually immune now if I've had it? And if that's not the case, that's a different ball game in terms of just your thinking about what herd immunity is. And so that's my little like fear. Is it founded in anything real? Well, I just don't know. I don't think we know yet. I'm sure that they're looking at this very carefully, mm-hmm. that it's a big deal. Um, and it, it may be that if people can get infected again quickly, uh, that, that would suggest that it's going to be really, really difficult to get a vaccine for it because mm-hmm. you have to make people immune through a vaccine. And if they don't get immunity from natural infection with coronavirus, how are you going to make a vaccine? Right. So that's, that's scary. Uh, there's also the possibility that uh, the virus persists in uh, the person's body for a long time and you get these secondary effects of mm. the illness that can last for months. And this might be what's bothering people who are going back for another test. Got it. And I don't, we just don't know at this point. We don't know. It, uh, but, you know, I am, I guess you asked about optimism and I am optimistic, generally speaking. Uh, because I think that eventually, I think the chances are good that um, that there will be some sort of a vaccine. I know that the company Regeneron, based in Boston, mm-hmm. has reported that um, that in a phase two trial, let's see, a phase two, maybe a phase one, I'm not sure, but in an early trial of their experimental vaccine, um, they've been able to demonstrate that that the vaccine makes people create antibodies to coronavirus in their bloodstream. Mm. There's another kind of telling thing here, which is there's been a suggestion, uh, scientists are trying to figure out if this is real or not, but you know, some people get very mild symptoms or don't get any symptoms at all when they're infected. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are lots of other coronaviruses and we've all been infected with coronaviruses. They cause the equivalent of a, of of kind of a bad cold, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it may be that if you've been infected by one of these normal, ordinary coronaviruses recently, that you get cross immunity to COVID-19. And so maybe these people who are not showing up with symptoms and are just kind of sailing along infected, but they don't seem sick. Maybe it's because they had a bad coronavirus cold in the last six months. And they've got residual immunity there that crosses over to COVID-19. We don't know about that. But if it's true, it suggests that it's going to be very possible to get a vaccine. And it also suggests that it's, I mean, it's not always about, I mean, people talk about not, you know, I'm asymptomatic. That must mean I didn't get a heavy dosage of the of the virus. It's like, well, maybe, but also maybe once science has its scientific method, which takes time, sadly, that's the thing that's frustrating about it is you've got to work and make sure it's correct before you go and tell, you know, billions of people to take a vaccine or billions of people to change their diets or this is the thing, uh, just my one final question. The thing that I think I've been most baffled by in terms of our government response and in general, just from the medical community, I I agree with the masks, masks 100%. I see almost zero talk about vitamin supplements or exercise. (laughs) Like, like, and I'm just curious, like what, are, should people just not ever worry about vitamins or, or is there, or, or uh, to me, it just feels like we're not talking about a lot of the things that people could be doing to build up natural immunities anyway, that we should be doing as a country, as a people. And I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts on like, you know, I don't, not asking for you to advocate for like taking vitamin D or B1 or anything, but 
what is the chatter? Are you hearing any of your friends or anybody talking about this stuff of like, yes, and if if we we're finding if somebody does have a you know takes a lot of vitamin D, that oddly is correlated with this. I mean, we're hearing a lot of people this anecdote. So I'm a marathon runner and I was in the hospital for three weeks. So it's maybe yeah. not true that just if you're in shape, you're going to be fine, but it's so confusing, you know, it could be a factor. Um, but it is very confusing because you see these people in great physical condition mm-hmm. and perfect health getting gravely ill and nobody knows why, uh, but all the possibilities really need to be looked at. Uh, I, you know, the jury is out on vitamin supplements for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, vitamin supplements might even hurt you. It's not clear. Um, I, I personally, I take a few vitamin supplements. Um, I don't believe that they're really going to help protect me massively against COVID. Um, the evidence at first, scientists were saying, well, maybe there's some evidence here that vitamin D is protective. Now it seems like maybe not so much. Mm. And, you know, why some people become really, really sick with COVID, um, it may actually have something to do with their genetic code, which they have no control over. Uh, you know, that's the way you were born. You, you, you know, in most populations, you know, when a virus gets into a population of organisms, there are always going to be these survivors. Mm-hmm. And the survivors are the ones that, for reasons of total accident, are just better able to handle the virus. And then their offspring then repopulate the population. Here's an example of it. So when DDT was first invented, um, they started spraying DDT all over tropical regions. And it was like wiping out mosquitoes left and right. And for a little while, for a few years there, the mosquito population was practically zero. It turned out that there were some rare individuals, mosquitoes, that had already had a gene that was that gave them natural resistance to DDT itself, and that was just a gene, just a natural, re- just a natural gene. resistance. Yeah, I mean, okay. we have a lot of genes in our bodies, and yeah. you know, some some of these genes are kind of loitering there, but they're not really doing anything. <laughs> they're just there. They've just and, been loitering for a hundred thousand years. Just. Exactly, and and so the mosquitoes <laughs> had a gene that was like the anti DDT gene. It's just sitting there, going, "When am I going to find any DDT? Oh, I'm going to save this mosquito," you know. But in fact, what it is, I think, is that you know, with the way nature works. We have all these extra genes because you never know. It's like having an attic full of tools. You never know when something might come in handy. Mm. And in this case, that little gene came in really handy for those mosquitoes that had it. And they just came right back and then DDT didn't work anymore. That is, well, listen, I, Richard, I've already taken a half an hour of your time and I'm grateful for it. And I look forward to in a couple months checking back in and talking about whatever, um, locust plague has descended upon us and <laughs> we need to talk about, but um, I'm really grateful for, for your just candidness. Um, and that, I think that anecdote uh, that you laid out there of the, the size of the amount of that virus that's having the effect that it's having. I think it's just, I think for a lot of people who are trying to get their head around just how to think about this, um, it's a, that's a sobering thought. Um, but I think your, your point too, is that we figure this out. You know, you, you've talked, you have been in the room with a lot of people at, at death's door, um, and, or, and with people who are with people at death's door on a regular basis, dealing with diseases like Ebola and smallpox and terrible, terrible things. Um, 
And so the fact that you have any optimism about this, then I should just trust you and steal some of it. <laughs> so I'm going to try to do that as best I can, Richard. Um, thank you so much for your time. Do you have, um, is there any updates or any places where if somebody is needing information that you recommend, uh, you know, where they can get good information on this stuff? Well, go to the World Health Organization website. Okay. Uh, go to the CDC. Go to the usual suspects. You know, uh, don't depend on crappy stuff that you're hearing in rumors on Facebook. Put that on a T-shirt <laughs> with your name, Richard Preston. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, tell Michelle I said hello, and I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Okay. That's been fun, Josh. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Richard. Okay, this podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Hilarious percussion videos, great educational educational content. Check them out. Uh, also, DunleavyPans.com. Uh, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds uh, and tunes all of the drums I play on with so percussion and teach on at Princeton and at NYU. Uh, he also tunes for, uh, he's tuned for bands in Brooklyn and in Trinidad. Check him out. DunleavyPans.com. Also, paninmotion.com. Have you ever wondered sort of what it was, you know, what does a steel band do? What can it do? Um, how can I use it to teach? What is the history of the pan? Check out paninmotion.com and you will not regret it. Uh, it's a good friends of mine, Kendall Williams, uh, Trisha Honey, or sorry, excuse me, Trisha Guy, Jerry Guy, uh, Arisha John. Check them out, uh, paninmotion.com. And finally, um, Mango Chow. You can look them up on Facebook. Amazing shirts, uh, merch, sort of a brand surrounding Pan. And Mango Chow, if you don't know, is a type of food in Trinidad. It's a snack food using mangoes, and it's amazing. Anyway, check out Aleandre's page there at, on Facebook at Mango Chow. You won't regret it. Okay, hope you're all doing well, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care, be well, and stay safe. Bye.